Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. What do you make of the Pinot phenomenon? Of course, post sideways, the plantings of the Pinot has risen exponentially to the point of fever pitch. They're planting it everywhere, and there's oh, an ocean of Pinot Noir all of a sudden from a fairly obscure variety. Um, what is your perspective on that phenomenon? Well, Pinot Noir, well, when that changed, it, it, it was the biggest issue there was there was a lot of cheap Pinots that came onto the marketplace, which were blended. You have two things. You have, you have a lot of low-class Pinot Noirs in the marketplace that don't taste bad. They don't taste like Pinot Noir because they've got grapes like um, Zinfandel and, and other things in there. They put these Syrah in there as well, and Syrah. So they're... And Chardonnay, as I learned. And Chardonnay, sure, I mean, you can do it. Lots of it. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, it's about price point. I always tell people, if you want to buy a great Pinot Noir, you have to start at $50 and go up. In fact, even, even more than that, maybe, maybe $100, because that's where you find your best Pinot Noirs. Yes. No, I, it's interesting. You kind of get what you pay for, right? And there's a lot of conversations about Pinot Noirs being more expensive, but there's a really good reason for that if you want purity. It doesn't necessarily mean that if you spend the money, you'll get the perfect you know, version of it, but you'll have a greater chance, correct? Right, right. You know, and, and then off Pinot Noir, another point of it is that people... People are used to drinking Cabernet and Zin um, in, in, in California and probably people that drink a lot of California wines. Mm-hmm. And they're looking and, and they don't like it when the Pinot Noir is too ele- elegant and too, <laughs> not green, but kind of a dry, leaf earth yeah. character. Uh, but, that's, but that's more, it's like Merlot. I, a true great Merlot is going to have some kind of herbaceous note to some degree and not green herbs, but but some leaves and some earth, uh, and and should not be as tanning as Cabernet. But people sometimes drink Merlot, they, they think it should be like Cabernet, rich. Yes, and it really depends on where it grows, right? Mountain fruit Merlot is so different from the valley floor. Right. That, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. A valley floor and the and, and hillsides. And of course, with the with the blending of grapes, you know, you could put 15%, you could put 25% of other grapes in there. So it can be a Merlot, and then at Piti Syrah and at the cabin there, and then you have a richer wine. Merlot certainly has fallen out of favor a bit because of a certain film, which is crazy. But I think it's kind of staging a comeback. I've, I've tasted some really good Merlots recently, and as a blending grape, I think it's, you know, it does an amazing job and yeah. very necessary as well. But even standalone, I mean, Merlot is a little bit like if it's good, it's really good. If it's bad, you don't want to be anywhere near it. <laughs> Merlot. Yes. I like Merlot's. <laughs> yes. And the irony of the movie, of course. What is he drinking in the last frame with his fast food burger? <laughs> yeah, that's right. The little Petrus. my burger. Yeah, the most expensive Merlot in the world. Um, I don't know if you know the backstory since we're on the subject. I feel the need to say that um, I, my understanding is that the reason he said I'm not, the, the reason Miles' character said I'm not drinking any effing Merlot is because that was his wife's favorite wine, ex-wife. 
Oh. He didn't, yes. So we end up in a cutting room floor. Oh my God. Change the Merlot world as a result. How about that? The power of, of Hollywood. You never know. <laughs> it can change. I mean, that's why you gotta be careful what you say at times. It is. It's, yeah. it's really crazy. So we left your career. Um, we touched upon you being uh, at Bevo for 19 years, which is quite a stage. And you've created a lot of value for that company. You sold a lot of wine for them, a lot of hard work and a lot of deliciousness. And I know they probably didn't want to let you go because you're such a huge asset, but now you're at wine.com. Tell us about this transition and what's exciting about working for wine.com. Well, it was, uh, it was a difficult year. Uh, that was about uh, uh, six years ago. Um, I, uh, Bethlehem was going away from my sweet spot because it was changing. Uh, and, you know, I don't blame it. Uh, they have to do something. And, but my job was, was very secure there because I, I was also tasting spirits and I was writing about spirits as well. And, and uh, yeah, I know tequila, whatever. Ooh, uh, that's the whole Scotch <laughs> and bourbon. But then, um, uh, so uh, it was difficult for me to leave because the Bevo took really good care of me. Uh, and marketing took really good care of me. Uh, the merchant's pretty good. Not quite <laughs> good, but that's okay. Uh, I mean, we always had our in-fight, but that's normal because that's how you spar with your colleagues in in, in, in a good nature way. Mm -hmm. But but I knew it was, it was time to go. Uh, uh, and I was very quiet when I left. I didn't really tell anybody, uh, uh, but a few people that I, that I kind of wanted to leave. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had actually several offers. I couldn't believe it. I mean, they were really, really strong offers. Uh, and so... Uh, and then Wine.com actually came to me. Um, I didn't even apply to Wine.com. Uh, and then they, and it was really fast. I was hired within 10 days. Wow. And, That's a lot. And it was a great job. And they gave me, they gave me my, my title. And, but it, it, it took me more than six or seven months to put that job in the right place. Because they didn't, it was a brand new job they created. And they didn't really have it. They had it mapped out, but but I kind of tweaked it to the way that it should be, and so, and then it was, it was much better. Fantastic. So, how many wines are you tasting for Wine.com? Is it an overwhelming amount again, just like with Bevmo? No, actually, it's less because like like I don't have to taste because uh, Wine.com does not do private labels, ah. uh, and we don't uh, we look at so so all those tank samples I used to like, taste or. I never do. Uh, plus, I'm not judging as much because uh, it's 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 it takes too much time for me to judge. So so I'm lowering my amount of wines. I'm around four thousand now. Mm -hmm. That's still so quite a lot. Yeah. And then since the pandemic, I'm averaging twenty wines, more than twenty wines a day, wow. uh, and uh, I get shipments every day here now. I'm UPS and FedEx. Yeah, they know me now. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and they're from all over the world. Uh, yeah, yeah, because they're they're from. What's happening also? Uh, I see. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it can be from any part of the world because it's it's the suppliers and the vendors that are shipping me the wine. Um, it because right now the restaurants are kind of in a bad way and yeah. really suffering. Uh, but the wine's still in the marketplace. It still needs to be marketed and sold. Um, and also. Another thing that I'm, 
I think is happening is there are no wine events now, are there? Not that I know of. Trust me, I have girls on a regular basis. I mean, there are no <laughs> wine events. Seeing you, I miss tasting wine. So then, no, so, so, so all those wines that were targeted in the budget for wine events are now to be reallocated to to either critics, writers, or people that that can give that wine some ink. So, so I'm getting additional wines that I would have gotten probably because because now these wines are just kind of um, not moving anywhere. Yeah. Uh, so wine.com has gotten some extra wines that, that in, in the past was too allocated only to restaurants. Yeah. Because in the meantime, they got to sell it. We're recording, of course, hopefully at tail end of the pandemic, at least the tail end of closing the country and hopefully it won't reignite. Uh, but how has your business um, changed as a result? You mentioned the influx of inventory from restaurants and more availability of allocated lines directly from the producers. What else has happened as a result of this pandemic? Well, our business is doing very well, okay? Um, uh, I mean, I've seen the numbers, but I don't really remember them, but very well. Uh, additionally, um, additionally, I mean, initially, the um, the average cost, I mean, the average, average price per bottle spent by our customers was higher and it dropped a little bit. So it dropped from like, like $34 to $27 a bottle. Okay. Uh, uh, I, I don't have the exact number, but it dropped. I think that it's returning up a, a bit. Um, um, but, we're, but we're enjoying a, a lot of sales at the moment. Volume. Uh, a volume picked up. I mean, it's it's more than we expected, uh, and and what's happening? But the team has not grown, so our workload has gotten heavier. So the team is kind of stressed out because the workload. I mean, even even my colleague Tim, uh, I'm I'm on our system at 11:30 night. He's on the system too at 11:30 night, because because I because I send an email back and he, and he answers. Oh my God! So uh, we're working hard. Uh, because we have to, uh, and we're taking care of our team, and we're going to be off. Uh, uh, we're going to be remotely working until uh, next year, at the wow. earliest. So we're not going back to the office very soon. That's amazing. So, in terms of like the buying pattern, you said that the price per bottle have gone down, but the volume shot up. So, is it fair to say that you're looking for more value wines now than ever? Well, we have them anyway on our site. Okay. So, so they'll sell because customers want them. Yeah. Um, but, but we still have the wines uh, that we're offering on our site, and they're still selling. So, it's 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 really the customer's choice what they want to buy. Yeah. Uh, 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 the marketing, uh, even though I'm part of marketing, uh, I don't watch all that stuff. You know, like it's for me uh, one thing about successful career in the corporate wine world is to be focused on your duties. Be very focused on what you do best and what you do to your for your company. If you wander off in areas that really don't pertain to you directly, then you're wasting your time. I love that. That's sage advice. Stay in your lane. <laughs> Move forward. You'll be fine, huh? Well, mostly. I mean, you still got to be aware <laughs> of social issues and that stuff too, and, and, and overall, but. Uh, but as far as your uh, workload, you got you got to concentrate on what you do. I mean, right now, I'm getting 
some emails from, from suppliers and vendors that are, uh, so I have to respond to them too. And you know, my, you know, my email box has actually tripled since the pandemic started. Wow. So as far as just any interesting tidbits and anecdotal stuff from your career, has, has something happened that you'd like to share with us? A wine that's just knocked your socks off or just surprised you in some way or some happening that's very eventful? Oh my God. Um, probably hundreds of stories, huh? One thing is that uh, you should always be open to tasting for new discoveries. Mm. Uh, and you cannot be, um, be locked into the status quo. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I was telling people about when I taste the wine, I want the wine to talk to me. Ah. I don't want to impose my opinion on the wine. So it has to tell me what it's about. And if you, let, if you take that angle, the wine will tell you what it's about. If it's simple, light, not much to it, it'll tell that to you. You don't have to look for that. Uh, and when, so um, uh, you have to open yourself to, to, to allow the wine to say, okay, I'm gonna talk about, let the wine tell the story. And then you can say, okay, good job. Not a good job. I don't think you can do it. I mean, I read a lot of press releases, uh, and there some of them are not so interesting. Mm -hmm. You know. Yes. So you're advocating active listening. I think it works so well in human partnerships, and clearly it works in in partnerships with wine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sage. I mean, I, I mean a story here. I tell you, uh, there was there was. A, the, the Bordeaux tasting, the blind tasting that the Mandavis held, uh, I think Michael, uh, I think Tim was also there. It was, it was made 20 years ago. And uh, his first group Bordeaux and, and, and Mandavi Reserve as well. And so I, so, so I, I knew there was a, a Latour and Margot and Lafitte okay, in this tasting. Uh, and then I think Michael or someone asked, asked me out of the entire audience of people to name the wines. Oh, my, said, oh, oh my God. Thanks a lot, Michael. Mm -hmm. and, and then, uh, uh, you know, so I think he, he, he asked me before I finished tasting. So then, then I started looking for the wines and, and they got all, all messed up. So... So, you know, like I prefer, I've always preferred Lafitte over Latour, okay? So, so the wine I ranked first, I just, I just said, well, this has got to be Lafitte, even though maybe my taste buds weren't sure. Uh, I should just let my gut feeling, okay, I get this first in front of, and so if you go, you let the wine talk to you, you're way better off than trying to impose your will on, on the wine. I think that's very wise. Um, so in your long and illustrious career, have you run across mentors or just simply people that impressed you that you really admire? Oh my God. Well, there are a lot of great teachers out there. there are, I think everybody brings something to the table. Mm -hmm. um, in the, if I were to, and in no particular order, people in, in, in my lifetime as I grew my career, I say Gerald Asher, mm -hmm. uh, 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 Bob Thompson, these are two uh, well-known um, uh, writers of the past years who were yeah. incredibly strong in how they present the, how they presented wine. Yeah. 
uh, as far as uh, you know people in the trade you know like bosses you love them you hate them you work with them you take care of them they take care of you you can't really uh you know they are they do what they do and you do what you what they do my colleagues um when at Abemo and why not come the buyers at least on that side they and i always work together uh and and and, and we have conversations with minds all the time uh it's everybody brings something to the table uh, yeah. what i've learned is that you have to kind of understand every you have to put yourself in everybody's if you work with three buyers, for instance, you cannot treat them each the same. Each buyer has a different sensitivity level. They have a different kind of thing that is going on. So you just have to kind of uh, not fight it. I'm not sure if I answered your question. I no, I, I, you guys, if you're listening carefully, uh, Wilfred is validating what I brought up in the beginning of the interview, which is high-level diplomacy. You are incredibly good at it. <laughs> <laughs> But it's, uh, you know what, it's better to do that because no one is ever always right. No one is always ever wrong. Uh, you know, I, I, I tell people all the time, hey, I'm sure there are, I know there are people that are better tasters than I am, that are better writers than I am, that, uh, that are better photographers than I am. Uh, and I'm, I'm good with that. You know, I don't care uh, uh, because you never... Can you ever be the best? Well, you can be the best version of yourself, and then you just do it, and and then uh, how however it plays the place, and other people can 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 toot your horn, but you're better off not tooting your own horn because then you're you're in a position of arrogance. Very very well put. I mean, again, what we're discussing, we happen to be you know, in the wine world, clearly both of us entrenched and you having an extraordinary career and also, you know, so much goodwill from the size of producers and such like that. It's no small feat. But honestly, what you said could just as easily be said about any other realm. And particularly, you know, in these times, these days, I just want to highlight what you said. No one is right about everything and no one is wrong about everything. There's always gray areas. There's always that humility that needs to be applied to any situation, no matter how dramatic and inflammatory. Yeah. Um, we as humans tend to lose perspective. Um, and these wise words that you just shared, I think are so necessary. And I hope that you guys that are listening, just think about holding yourselves accountable and asking yourself a question of, who you are, you know, as a person, as a friend, as a citizen, and what that really means. And I think if we actually ask ourselves that question, we would be so much better off as a society at large. You know, we're all trying to solve somebody else's problems while really kind of ignoring our own. Yeah, very, very well said. Um, you know, I might also add this that I learned from you, I learned from my colleagues, maybe they learn from me um you know i i work with also a lot of millennials who are friends of mine and i ask them questions too um even questions about about tasting uh that that they may know because they're learning as well i mean they're taking a w set and everything and i have no problem if they were if they enlighten me on something that i 
may have been missing. You know, it's okay. You know, I don't have a problem with learning from a 21-year-old human being. That's if, right. If, <laughs> It's no, okay. it says a lot about who you are. You know, um, when you're open completely, I think, you know, you show up and that's the most important step of all, just being there and taking it in. And you may wind up disagreeing, but at least you're open to what's happening and what's presented to you. Um, one of the questions that I've always wanted to ask you was from the perspective of the business, because um, you, you know, you've had discussions with so many wineries over the years. Um, what would you suggest to a producer, to a new producer? Wine business, you know, gets over romanced, <laughs> overhyped, and almost fetishized as something that's so amazing and wonderful. Um, and a lot of people, you know, in Napa alone, there's like. 660 bonded wineries and probably oh, wow. ones popping up as we speak. So a lot of people are entering in the space, not always for correct reasons, meaning they really don't understand all that goes into it. But I know that you do, even though you're not in the wine production, but your life experience has to be, you know, so vast and you've gained so much insight from people that started wineries that you, you must have a point of view about what, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to become a producer? Oh my God, that's a big question. Well, <laughs> um, I would say focus is is where it starts. You 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 have to know what do you want to be when you grow up. Okay, uh -huh. do you want to make do you want, do you want me to do you want to make the the greatest most expensive Cabernet in Napa Valley? Uh, uh, do you want to make something that you can sell a lot of? Uh, what, you have to know the marketing potential of your product. What is your product? Which, which box are you going to try to jump into? Are you going to make a, a, a carbonate at $100 a bottle? Or are you make one at 200 You know, I think those are reasonable ideas that you need to have on the table there first. And then you have to figure out, okay, this is what we want to do. And then, then you have to also know what land is available to produce that kind of wine or what vineyards that you can buy from that will give you the, the fruit to make wines that's capable of competing with other people that are established. You know, I mean, there's a lot of, these are questions that are important because uh, once you have an understanding of where you want to go, then you can map out your program and, uh, and then you and then you have to hire people that are skilled and yeah. spend them and, and spend the money yeah. uh, don't be cheap in this category I mean you got to you got to hire people that are best at their uh, positions that that can a marketing person uh, hospitality whatever position they're trying to fill yeah. they need to understand they need to be good uh, when I think sometimes you know, like wineries will, or anybody in those wineries, but will will be cheap in this area and say, okay, with this person I can pay this much of my money. Well, sometimes you get what you pay for. Now, it doesn't mean that to pay everybody has to be top drawer. You can hire someone to be an assistant or learning be part of that team, but you need someone in the leadership part that's really experienced and knowledgeable 
and experience. Well, but how much value do you place on marketing in the context of wine? Well, marketing is is very important because marketing uh, will help under will help take that product to market in the right place where it has to be, where it has to go. That has to do with presentation, the label. I mean, for wines or or the uh, wine.com, what we do uh, is our related. I mean, obviously, each each discipline. If you're in a merchandising department, the buyers, the buyers have to know how to how to bargain for the get the right price, the best price, the best deal, uh, the, work the sales guy so that, so that it's a good relationship that is uh, beneficial to both you and and uh, as supplier. Uh, and, and, and then the uh, marketing has to understand what is the product that we're trying to market? What are we trying to market and to whom and how we market it? Um, I think it's important. It's all related. I mean, you know, like obviously, the produce the the winemaking team makes the product, but the ownership dictates kind of where it can go with the product. I mean, say okay, you can buy you can buy these barrels. They're way expensive, but okay, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stop you or say no. You cannot buy these kind of barrels. They're too expensive. So uh, so it's all related. I mean, I don't think you can you can divorce any part from another part of the business. Now, there's so much of me that wants you to really, you know, create some sort of a masterclass or a little bit of schooling for a lot of proprietors, uh, not just in Napa, but there's so much attention that I see being paid very frequently to the production and to that vision, um, you know, sort of engineering bits and pieces that would come out for the product, the desirable product, you know, their individual tastes and parameters. But then when it comes to marketing, that's an afterthought. Um, and I think that's why a lot of brands suffer. Yes, uh, I agree with you. I mean, it should not be an afterthought. And marketing has to, obviously, marketing is not going to make the, a decision on how the wine is made uh, yeah. or, or that. You know, each department will do what it does. I mean, like, like the buyers have to, in our company, have to choose what they want to feature. It's, uh, I, I mean, no, no. Uh, actually, having said that, I might be wrong too because, because even though I'm a part of marketing and merchandising, I don't get involved in that part of the business. I just taste the wine, give it my story and the score, and then put it on the site, and then uh, uh, and, and, I, and I work with the folks that, that make the product or the or the uh, or the vendors and suppliers who bring the wine to us. Um, but uh, it's all related, you know, uh, and, and, and each department must respect each other, allow them to do what they do best. And then the person on top of all that can make, make the call. Okay, this is the direction we got to go. And then and the, let the teams figure out how to do it. I love what you pointed out qualitatively. You said, you know, you, you really should be tasting 2,000 plus wines a year if you call yourself Great. a taster, but what kind? And again, the quality of your staff in the context of retail business or, you know, tasting room, DTC, whatever it is that you created as a business entity, the quality of staff is so important because if you, I think, you, again, you put it very succinctly, if you basically cheap out on that part and just staff it with somebody who's less than competent or, you know, family member was available, uh, it's going to show. It's all the details, right, that make right. 
whole that much better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, well, you have to arm your your soldiers with the right uh, equipment. Yes. Uh, like, like, uh, and and every department, if your hospitality, there's certain things that you have to know how to take care of the business. Uh, you know, like tasters, like what I do. Uh, this kind of job that I have is is kind of unusual. Yeah. Uh, uh, and because uh, uh, most buyers that work for large retailers don't taste that much or they don't, it's not a big part of their job. Their job is negotiating the price. Yeah. And, and understanding the allocations, how much they open to buy, stay on budget, and also projecting their margins. Yeah. That, is a, that is the most important part of their job. Uh, being a buyer is, is not that sexy of a job. It can pay well, but it's not that sexy. Yeah, for sure. Well, Wine.com is certainly lucky to have you. I mean, they tapped into yeah, the you. you have such a tremendous you know, library of knowledge in your palate. Well, you know what? I'm lucky to work with this great company, too, because cause I love my job, and I love the team that I work with. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great lot of mutual respect. Uh, you know, like, it's not that we, we're always sweet to each other either, but we have respect for each other. Because, you know, like, you know, it's, um, it, it's a really healthy environment that, that we work in. Well, considering how many hours you spend at work, as we learned, it's really important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like sure. quality of life, quality of professional life, super, super important. So I have like a lot of questions about being cognizant of time and such. The one that I cannot afford to leave behind is wearing the consumer hat. For those that are just wine curious, for those that you know know a little bit but have a lot of desire to learn more, what is your advice? You know, when somebody walks into a retail shop and stares at the shelf with a lot of labels staring back, how would you suggest people navigate this weird and wonderful world of wine? It's a complex thing now. Okay, so. I'll I'll tell you on auto levels. So wine.com, we have a very good system. Mm -hmm. Okay, when you get onto our site, we have um, like a, a pop-up of a sommelier that will help you with certain, and they are very, very good. Uh, they are very good because they're pretty trained uh, and, and they have pretty good knowledge of, of the category of wine. Plus they have their tools at hand with them to help navigate. Uh, additionally, uh, our, our site has a lot of information on, on the product. But then, but basically, wherever the consumer is, is going to go, they have to find someone, whether it's in a store or in a restaurant, that, that will take care of them uh, and, 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 and listen to what they want. And yeah. uh, uh, because, like, the names are all gibberish, if you think about it. There's a lot of names. There are a lot of and vintages and names and, and lot numbers and and single vineyards and, and cuvées. Uh, it, it comes down to, are you buying a red, you're buying a white, how much you want to spend, you know? Yeah. So, and then, and I would say that uh, if a consumer is interested in, in having a meaningful discussion with someone they're trying to buy the wine from, and then, then ask more questions. And like, uh, anyone that come, we're very good about that. We will 
uh, we will help uh, our our consumer kind of navigate that. And and Mojave is not you know one thing that I don't like about the wine world is this inherent snobbiness that shows up. That people think that because they know about wine, they're better. And you know it's like it's about it's about communication. So yes. the so the consumer is overwhelmed. It's it's difficult. I think one step at a time. Um, I would say also don't spend on a budget if you're still learning. You know, spend at a price point that you're comfortable with. Like whether it's ten, twenty, thirty dollars, whatever it is. You know, try the wine. Maybe get a suggestion of the pairing. Tell whoever, uh, hey, I'm having chicken piccata tonight. Uh, what should I have? Okay. And then try it. And if it, if it works and you like it, continue. If it doesn't work, you can come and say, you know, I tried this and I didn't really like it, how it worked. And I mean, to me, I, mean, I remember when I was like 22 and I was retailing wines, Ashbury Rocket, I saw some wines and it backfired and, and, it, and I, I got rather right on it. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, so, and, and so that one moment, uh, uh, of, of experience taught me that I had to listen better. You know, I sort of shouldn't bump somebody that was bone dry. And they were used to like Charles Gould Chenin Blanc with a little bit of sweetness. And, and they hated the one I sold them. So, so um, to consumers is just um, find someone that will listen. Yeah. And, and then also don't be afraid of, of different labels that they don't know. So say, it's more about price point, what they're reading, what the, their occasion, how much you want to spend. That makes and sense. Then, if someone was really of a mindset that they need to spend, let's say $20 or less, do you yeah. believe it's possible to drink well and there's enough value proposition in those wines to really have a good experience under 20 bucks? It's a kind of loaded question, uh, but I think um, well, the answer is yes. Um, the answer is if if that person is not accustomed to drinking wines that much, uh -huh. and, and they're going to buy a, a name brand wine that they know, like uh, I'm, I'm not committing names, but uh, but a name that they know, um, it'll probably be say for Chardonnay, it'll probably be a little sweet probably a little soft, a little easy to drink. Um, they may like that if they're, if they're a, a new wine drinker uh, that's just learning, uh, learning, starting. Uh, if, they, if they got a, uh, say like a Pinot Grigio from the, from the, from the, from the Alto Alge, tart, crisp, and biting, they may hate that wine, even though it's a better wine than that Chardonnay with sugar, at least in my estimation. So um, what happens is that the people that know wines, like say sommeliers or people in the trade or writers or media, they know what appellations they can buy, what DOC they can buy and save money and, and get a good wine at a good price. The people that, that, uh, that are not in a geeky-ish kind of like, like foodie type of category, uh, uh, will probably end up defaulting to to up to a wine with some sugar or soft or user friendly. Yeah, I think that's good advice. And you pointed out earlier that if you align yourself with 
for example, when people were able to read your scores at Bevmore, and the notes as well, there's always very detailed um, descriptors. And you can really have at least an understanding that way, as opposed to just looking at a label that can be anything. So Ooh. it's very useful. Um, so obviously your career um, that you've crafted for yourself, I mean, it's almost like this vision board that everybody talks about recently. You wanted a company that would fly you to France. And there you are, you had a company that flew you to France. So clearly uh, you've done, you've, if you've implemented your vision, but if you didn't become who you are, what other profession do you think you would have attempted? Oh my God, uh, I have not thought about that. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe I would write actually fiction. Really? Yes. That's fascinating. Fiction or poetry or something like that. I mean, I, I really enjoy writing or I'd be a photographer. I mean, it's super serious. But I, I am. Yes, you are a photographer. You guys yeah. need to stalk Wilfred on Instagram. Seriously, I love your page. The pictures have so much character and their stories within a photo. So you are, in fact, a photographer. And I could see that being, you know, a career for you because you have a really very sharp eye and this artistic vision that's unmistakable. Well, God. Well, thank you. So kind. Yes. <laughs> I, just, you know, I enjoy doing what I do. Um, you know, I think that if you enjoy what you do, you're probably going to do better at it than if you didn't enjoy it. That is a beautiful sentiment to end this discussion on. I hope that I get to talk to you again soon in person and we'll do another interview down the road when things open up and do a little catch up. But yeah. it's such a pleasure speaking with you. Well, it's, always, it's great to see you. It's been a while. This is the longest time I think it's been since I've seen you. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, yeah. listen, uh, you keep well. Um, Thank you. You know, take care of yourself, keep positive. This is a tough time for all of us, so we have, we have to do our best to, to uh, get through it together. We're all in it together. Well put, we're in it together. Yeah. Thank you again. Uh, listen, thank you for having me on, and uh, hey, I'll see you soon, okay? Absolutely. All right. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure featuring Alona Thompson. We'll see you again next week.